I'm David Smith, and you're listening to the Faith in Teaching podcast from the Kaiser Institute for Christian Teaching and Learning at Calvin University. In this series, we'll be talking with researchers and educators who are working to understand how Christian faith affects teaching, learning, and the way we do education. Today, I'm talking to Patrick Manning, uh, who is uh, an associate professor of pastoral theology uh, and the chair of the Department of Pastoral Theology at Immaculate Conception Seminary School of Theology. Uh, So, Patrick, welcome. Thank you for being with us. Um, Tell us just a little more about your work and your interests. Uh, What do you do? Sure. Uh, And thanks for having me, David. Uh, pleasure Pleasure to be talking with you. Uh, so, yeah, so as you say, I, I chair the Department of Pastoral Theology uh, at the seminary, which is also located on the, the campus of Seton Hall University. Um, I've, I've, uh, I've always wanted to be a teacher, practically. Um, I, was, I was very fortunate early on to have a, a great theology department in my high school, uh, and those folks, I think, kind of lit the spark. Uh, and so, uh, you know, te- teaching's always been the thing for me. It's for me as a way to, to kind of lead other people into a fuller way of life. So I, I got to start with that uh, earlier on as, as a parish catechist. Uh, I started my formal teaching career as a, a teacher of high school, um, but then sort of made my way, uh, went on for advanced studies, specialized in religious education, theological education, catechesis. Um, I'm especially interested in pedagogy and teaching well. Uh, and so in my current position at Immaculate Conception Seminary, um, I'm able to offer some courses that deal with teaching and catechesis, but uh, I also do work with, uh, with, with parishes, with catechists, with teachers do workshops, and I do a lot of my, my writing has to do with, uh, with teaching and how to teach well. So that's, that's, that's the gist. Yeah. And, and the connection that we're going we're gonna to talk about in your, your recent work is this connection between um, contemplative practices and, and the way that we teach. And at least in the, you know, in the Protestant world where I spend a lot of my time hanging out, um, there was this realization uh, about a, maybe a decade ago, um, a bit more in, in, in some cases, that uh, we'd often tend to talk about, about faith and teaching as if it was mostly a question of how beliefs or doctrines um, framed teaching philosophically or whether we got to talk about them in the classroom or uh, whether we got to read about them uh, and it was sort of mostly about belief contents and there was this I think there's been a wider realization over the last decade that there's also practices there's also that faith is faith is not just a set a list of believings it's also a list of practicings and um uh, and so was really interested in the uh this work that you're doing and Within this wider conversation about Christian practices, you're focusing at the contemplative end of things. So, what what does it drew you into this into this conversation about practices, and why the particular ones that you're interested in? Sure, yeah, and just just to be concrete for the benefit of our listeners, um, perhaps some already have a sense, but when we're talking about uh, contemplative teaching practices, we're talking about things like. Uh, like Lexio Divina, or at least a, a slow, deep reading of text, uh, perhaps reflective writing, uh, practicing deep listening to to one another, um, beholding, really, uh, you know, gazing uh, deeply for a sustained period at a piece of artwork or an icon or something in nature, uh, perhaps even incorporating some some forms of uh, meditation or prayer uh, into the classroom. 
but to to the point of your question, uh, how, you know, why did I get interested in this? Well, um, it, you know, really to begin with, it it sort of came to me. Uh, I was having a conversation with the director of our Center for Faculty Development at Seton Hall, and she had been looking around at other centers and other universities and seeing other people uh, paying attention to contemplative pedagogy. So we we started a, a conversation and we started doing some work with our faculty around contemplative pedagogy. Uh, and this was coming for me at an interesting time where I was I was sort of experiencing a, a, a maybe a parallel uh, development in in my own spirituality where it was becoming more more contemplative, spending more time in contemplative prayer. Um, so there's there was something going on there that was really encouraging. But then, as we continued to work uh, with our faculty on this, uh, it just uh, it just it just really took root. Uh, this is something that that our faculty really seized upon to the point that, uh, particularly with a core group that I've been working with for a number of years now, uh, a number of those people will now talk about their work with contemplative pedagogy and being part of this of this group uh, as th the best part of their experience at at the institution. So there's just something about that, you know, it, as I said, it sort of came to me in the beginning. Uh, and we just kept developing it, and it, it just it has really felt like there this is this is something that's that is of the spirit because of the you know because you know you try lots of different things in faculty development and they don't all stick, but this is one that has just really proved very fruitful for for us. So why, why do you think that is? Why why this tug in this direction at this moment in time in this context? Is there a, is the, is this responding to a need? Is it is it is it the right moment for this? Is there some is there some reason why we need to be focusing on this right now? Yeah, I, I do think it it is of the moment. Um, I I think this uh, the the sort of contemplative practices, this contemplative tradition within Christianity, uh, is a gift that you know something that we can sort of bring out of our storeroom that is really something that the world needs in a particular way right now. Um, you know, speaking first of our of our faculty, as I said, the faculty that I've been working with have really taken to this, have really been nurtured by it. And something, one thing that I've heard over and over again from this group is that it has uh, it has enabled them to achieve a kind of a kind of integration in their lives. It has sort of brought together, you know, their personal with with their teaching and what's happening at work. They're experiencing a kind of wholeness uh, on account of um, just being more reflective, contemplative themselves, but really thinking about how can they um, be more contemplative about how they're approaching their courses. And that's even that's even before they begin to do any kind of contemplative practice with their students, simply being more contemplative about how they are approaching the course. So certainly our faculty have responded, have responded very positively to it, but I looking at sort of what's going on more broadly in society, I really do think it's of a moment because we, we live in such a, a, a culture of distraction. Uh, obviously, everyone's painfully aware of all the mental health issues that, that we've been struggling with in recent years. Uh, and so this seems to be a, a, a sort of set of practices, a, a way of teaching, and even more than that, a way of being together that is that really helps people to find some some modicum of peace and, and some sort of integration in their lives. Mm -hmm. I, I've been really struck by this talking to, to teachers over the last few years. We, we ran a course online a few years back where one of the things we asked teachers to do was to watch a video of a snail moving over a rock for seven minutes and uh, uh, 
people found it an admittedly difficult experience because they weren't used to slowing down for that long. And a couple of things that stayed with me out of that. One was that uh, one teacher described finding a video of some salamanders to show her elementary school students. And it tied in with a standard in the science curriculum. And, uh, and, and, and then she just let it continue to play for a few minutes because it was so beautiful and immediately started feeling guilty because she was off the curriculum, right, and wasn't being productive anymore. Uh, and yet, well, we actually asked people to slow down. The language people used was it people, several people wrote, I felt like I could breathe, yeah. uh, which I thought was a really telling way of putting it. But there's something about the way we structured teaching and learning that makes it very difficult for us to breathe and makes us feel guilty if we slow down for three minutes, um, which is really seems malformative. Um, so, <laughs> well, and it's and it's. I mean, this is this is part of a, a wider culture, right? You know, it's not just our teaching. It's not just our our educational institutions. I mean, this this is the it, this is the you know the the air we breathe, if you will, or you know the um, you know the the water that we're swimming in is that we just live in a culture that is so fixated on. Uh, on efficiency that I find, you know, now that, now that I'm a parent, I find myself really having to work hard to try and resist uh, inflicting that on my own children in terms of, okay, you know, you got to get ready. We got to hear, we got to be on time because that's what, that's, it seems to be how our whole society runs, including our courses. You know, we've, yeah. we have, we have these many weeks, we have th these many minutes today and we need to cover this material or we, we, or we haven't met the benchmarks, we haven't met our standards and we feel that we've failed. But part of, uh, part of what has been really refreshing about this initiative for us is that it's, it has helped us to take a step back and think about the whole educational enterprise and rethink those kind of standards and our goals that yes, we may be achieving certain content knowledge, but what's becoming of us as, as human beings? I, I think it's mm -hmm. such an important question to be asking. There's so many directions I want to go in at this moment. And uh, so, so let me let me jump to, um, I, I'm imagining that some people could listen to this and say, well, okay, yes, it gives you a sense of peace. It's going to make you, maybe it's going to make you feel less stressed. It's maybe going to make your life go better. Um, and, and that's important. Uh, but what about the learning? Like I've still got to teach math, science, you know, et cetera. Do, do you see this having benefits for the learning process or is this more of a therapeutic intervention so that, teachers and students survive while they're doing learning. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, there there is a little bit of a tension there. And I'd say, especially as I've worked with faculty who are uh, in, you know, in the hard sciences, or for example, we, we have a big nursing program at our school. And there, in, there inescapably is a tension there because they have material and competencies that they must teach their students. They cannot allow them to leave. They cannot be certified unless they have covered all these things. And there's a lot to cover. So there is a tension there. Um, but generally speaking, um, this, this is not an, uh, these things are not in opposition. Um, and so these, these contemplative studies, if someone's interested, I would highly recommend uh, Daniel Barbazat and Mirabai Bush's book, Contemplative Practices in Higher Education where they talk about some of these specific practices, uh, but also marshal a lot of the research uh, that's been done on them. Uh, and yes, they find that there are a lot of benefits for, for mental health, uh, for alleviating anxiety, but there are also a whole slew of positive academic uh, outcomes as well, that they find that it, uh, these sort of practices um, 
do enhance uh, students' ability to, um, to pay attention, to focus. Um, they find that it, it, it generates uh, or facilitates creativity. Um, even in, in, you know, depending on the practices and the way it's being engaged, it can actually, it, there are some studies that would suggest that it actually improves students' GPA. Um, so there's, and, you know, the, there's always, this inevitably comes up in this, in this conversation is the question of rigor, you know, is, you know, well, is this rigorous? Aren't, you know, is, are we just basically having rela- relaxation, nap time in class? Uh, but again, I think I think w- when addressing that, we need to ask ourselves, well, I mean, what what is really important here in this educational endeavor? Is it is it simply that we are covering material, most of which a student is going to forget uh, a week after the semester? Um, or do we want a, a deeper kind of, of, of learning, you know, wisdom even, I, I think, is something that we should be striving for as Christian educators, at least. Yeah, it, it, it's funny. It, 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 it's almost as if students are not like industrial machines that you can just run at capacity the entire time and uh, to get more things done. Right? Okay. <laughs> so, um, that, uh, um, I, I'm often intrigued by this thing. You know, I, I think one of the things we implicitly absorb is this sense that, that time comes in these linear packets of certain quantities and you need to kind of try to use more of them. Whereas sometimes actually slowing down is more productive in the long run in some sense of productivity right and and i i know for myself at the start of uh, every semester i meet each of my students one-on-one for five ten minutes and and really without a big agenda to try to be present and see them uh and and get a chance to actually see their face see who they are listen to them talk about themselves um and it changes the way i teach for the whole of the rest of the semester i if i ever bail on it because i don't have time i always regret it because I teach less well for the next six weeks if I don't if I don't get a chance to slow down and actually connect with who my students are first. Yeah. And I wonder how that how that's working for students, right? That sometimes going faster, you're not getting more done. Um, right, right. Yeah, many of our faculty report the same sort of thing where they once once they get in the habit of, for example, many will begin class with some sort of of silent meditation or a guided meditation. And if they later in the semester try to skip it for this, because I'm sorry, we're too far be- behind on material. We need to skip the meditation today. Students revolt. <laughs> they know we need it. Yeah. But you know what? I mean, what you're saying is wonderful. About taking that time um, to really, you know, to see your students and to check in with them. Um, two two of our faculty who have been most engaged uh, in this work with us are actually come from our school of education. And, um, and they have spoken, re- I mean, really beautifully about the difference that this has made. I mean, how it has just utterly transformed um, their, their classes and the, you know, the groups of their, you know, not every, not every group of students in the same way or to the same extent, but by and large, um, and I think this is especially important given everything that's happened with the pandemic in recent years, that the, the, the students are bringing so much into the classroom and there's so much kicking around in their heads that as my colleagues would see, say, they, like, they, they need to get ready to learn before they can just dive in. And so the, you know, so the mentality of just getting right to the material and covering as much material as possible almost becomes counterproductive at a point if the students are not ready to learn. Yeah. Do you have any other examples? You mentioned the silent meditation at the start of class. Like, what what kinds of things are are, are your colleagues trying in class? Sure. 
Yeah, a lot of different things. And as I alluded to at the beginning, you know, so much, um, this is a very subtle thing that we, we've come to realize how important it is so much is, is preparation or even just how the teacher approaches the class. I mean, the, the students may have no idea that, that a teacher is taking a sort of contemplative approach, but uh, the teacher might be doing something like, for example, before, you know, so often we're rushing from, you know, rushing from a meeting to class or rushing from one place to another. And, and we need to arrive ourselves. We need to be, you know, mentally, emotionally, spiritually prepared to enter into that learning space. And so, you know, one very simple thing is just simply, uh, even right outside the, the door to the classroom, just pausing for a moment to take, you know, take a deep breath uh, or po possibly say a prayer. Um, you know, I, I, I have learned from others and I've started doing myself is actually taking the time um, to maybe arriving in the classroom earlier and, uh, and praying for each of the students in the room, sort of picturing where they sit. And, and that it, it totally transforms the way that we approach uh, that class and how we enter in. But in terms of uh, time in the classroom, like I mentioned, for example, um, how we read text. Um, so, you know, a lot of faculty are finding that they're, um, their students just have a, they're not really able to process the material for the given a reading assignment, as well as perhaps some, you know, students in previous years. Uh, and so one way of dealing with that is just to take at least a, you know, a small passage or a text in class and, and read it very slowly together. Uh, or even to use something like a Lexio Divina sort of style where, you know, we read it slowly, we, you know, meditate, what are the words that, that are sticking out to us, um, and have some time and quiet to really process there. Or I know another, I was reading about another uh, teacher who does like, uh, uh, it's like a, uh, like a, a, like a Jewish style reading of text where she'll actually have the students get together in pairs and read the text very, very slowly with the instruction, you know, and pause over the words that jump out to you, you know, for, when a question occurs, like, why does it say it this way? Like, what's missing here? And they, you know, and the students sort of having a conversation. So, you know, so I could, I could go on and on, but yeah, I mean, those would be at least a, a couple of examples. Yeah. That was great. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I'm really struck by your, your, your mention of imagining the students before the class. Cause I, I'm not very consistent at this, but, but I often try to, um, like before the semester, print off the class picks and make a kind of a bookmark and, and make that my prayer list before the semester starts. And then if I can get to class early, you know, pray over the empty chairs. And, and you know, as I think about that, I mean, you know, I trust that God answers prayer. So I do actually think this is one way of investing in my students' learning. Um, but it's also a way of positioning myself. I think I think it's it's working on how I'm thinking about students before I start trying to teach them and that I'm, I'm not going into class thinking of students as kind of, um, you know, obstacles to my prowess as a teacher or, uh, or, or, or people that I didn't need to knock into shape or whatever, but I've actually been uh, reflecting on their well-being um, through praying for them uh, before I start teaching. And I find that, a, you know, just a helpful way of positioning myself as a teacher, because I think it's, it's, it's really easy to teach out of um, impatience or irritation or uh, the desire for productivity or a lot of things that might not actually be great ways of approaching other human beings. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. yeah and and I, I think, I mean, I think this is something that's just inherent to our humanity that all of us feel that we, um, and you said it right at the beginning that you really try, you come into the classroom and, and try and see your students. Um, we, we all want to be seen. 
we all want to be known. Um, there's some really wonderful research coming out of the, the Springtide Research Institute where they talk about sort of their belonging process, that when do, when do people feel like they belong in a community or space? And they, and they say it's three things, that a, a person is, is noticed, named, uh, and, and known. Um, but yeah, this, this idea of, you know, just, you know, really seeing our students, I think this is for students who may have spent the past couple of years in various degrees of isolation or uh, mediating uh, their interactions through a screen, uh, to really to, to have that experience of someone really seeing them is, is again I think I think potentially transformative and really healing for a lot of people. I think that's right. I, a couple of years ago, when I uh, one day in class, I had my students come sit on the floor at the front of the classroom and then observed a silence and then had them call out one word for how they were doing, which is something I learned from Dorothy Vandering. And um, a fifth of them named that as the most transformative moment of the semester at the end of the semester when we debriefed. And I thought, is the bar that low, right? That you, you get like three minutes of silence and you get to say one word about how you're doing and this is already like amazing from the student's point of view. It's sort of, yeah. I don't know, it said something kind of horrifying to me about the, uh, you know, the culture of education, if that's really unusual. So Well, and I do. And I think it's something that's, that's extremely rare uh, in, in their experience these days. There's just, yeah. they just, they're, they're not spaces for, for still and silence in, in the world today. So making this connection, I mean, we said earlier, there's, there's different ways of connecting faith and teaching and, uh, and faith and education. Um, what do you see as the strengths and weaknesses of this way, right? If, we, if we're going we're gonna to really focus on this kind of contemplative practices as kind of the, as the bridge that, 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 that connects faith commitments to the classroom. Um, and, and I think, you know, we've heard some of the strengths, but what, what do you think of it? Is there anything this is going to miss? Is there anything we need to supplement this with? Is this, is this a place we should put a lot of our energies or where do you see this sitting in a, in a, in the overall project? Yeah. Um, yeah, so maybe I mean briefly about a little more about strengths, and then I'll get to you know some potential um, weaknesses. Um, you know, one just to reiterate, as we've been saying, I you know I think this is this sort of approach. It encourages us. Um, there, there's something that's holistic about it um, that encourages us um, to you know to see the other person in their fullness, to bring the fullness of who we are to the classroom. So it's it, it, it's really it's it's a humanizing way to teach. Um, I also think a great strength for um, for those who are teaching from a, um, a a perspective of faith, or you know, teaching in uh, in faith affiliated institutions, is this. I find that this is a way of teaching that sort of opens up the space um, to to the divine, to the transcendent, to mystery. Um, this I. I think I think it was John of the Cross that said, "God's first language is silence." Uh, and you know, we we theologians, we you know, we have a lot of words and we love our words, but there needs to come a point where the words stop and we recognize their limitations. And I think this is this is an approach that helps us to do that. And as you said, though, that it might be that moment of silence where the students learn learn something that is the most profound for them. Right. Right. Um, you know, in terms of things to, to look out for, um, you know, a couple of things. Um, one, again, that I alluded to, you know, this idea of like, well, is this is this a rigorous enough approach? And like like any sort of pedagogical approach. Um, sure. If, if it's done poorly. Yes. The, you know, this could work against students 
if you know if you have someone who doesn't really know what they're doing or honestly is just being lazy oh i didn't prepare my lesson for today we'll have extra time for meditation right yeah <laughs> silence sure. zero prep yeah that's right, that's right. yeah um, yeah. So that, you know, so yes, you know, it can be used for, for ill in that way. Um, but I, uh, I, a colleague at um, Holy Cross College in, in Worcester, Mass, Mary Roach, uh, she, she put this, I, I love her way. She said, you know, I, I, we need to stop talking about rigor and stop talking about vigor. Is, is this is a vigorous kind of education because very often when you, what, what it boils down to when we're talking about rigor is, is it hard for the students? Like, am I assigning right. a lot of reading? Are the assignments difficult? But can we really ask, like, is this vigorous? Is this, is this life-giving for them? Is this really uh, instilling a passion and a competency for these different areas in which they're studying? So I, I, I love sort of flipping the language that way. But I'd say one other thing that is really important to be cautious about is that there there is so much trauma out there right now, and there there are many many studies, an abundance of of literature that that documents how good this is for alleviating anxiety um, and depression and that sort of things. But the studies have also found that there are some students for whom meditation, silence um, can, can be triggering, it can actually heighten anxiety. Because if they're, if they're dealing with some real demons, entering into that silence, going into a, a deep place uh, might be something they're not prepared to do. And so uh, I think, you know, there is an increasing amount of literature on trauma-informed uh, approaches and teaching. And I think it's, it's important to be knowledgeable about that uh, if if you're thinking about doing these kind of things in the classroom, mm-hmm. so how how do you screen for that? I'm curious. In in your own practice, do you do you, do you give students an option, or do you do you yeah. get them to tell you something about their relationship to this first? Or yeah, you um, right. I it's I think it's one of the most important things that a teacher can do is is make sure that um, students have freedom, that they know that none of this is compulsory, that it's a, that's an invitation. So, you know, if I'm going to do a silent meditation in class, I'll say, you know, we're going to spend these moments in silence. I, you know, I invite you to join us. You know, you can, you can sit in silence. You can say a prayer silently to yourself, or if this is not your thing, you know, please just be respectful of the silence for the other students. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll also make a point of saying at the beginning of the semester and then remind them a number of times throughout the semester, if, you know, if um, you are having a reaction to this, uh, you know, there are a number of things that they can do. Um, it, it helps. Um, it helps to if you can ground yourself. So just becoming aware of your feet on the floor or sort of the pressure of your backside against the seat can be something that kind of draws people, you know, out of their minds if they're going into a dark mm-hmm. place and back into their bodies. Uh, but also I say, if, you know, if something happens and you need, and you need to get up and leave the classroom for a moment, you're wel- welcome to do that. Um, so in all that, you know, besides, I, I think there's the hope that as time goes on, my students will, will come to trust me. And so if they're, I'm, I'm not going to ask them to write down on an index card at the beginning of the, of the semester, you know, what's, What's your favorite sports team? What's your hometown? And uh, what uh, what traumatic experiences have you had in, in your life? But as time goes on, um, if if need be, you know, hopefully I try and be open and project that that's something that they they can share if they choose. Mm-hmm. So we're almost up against time. It's a fascinating conversation. I think we could go on. Um, but uh, you're, you're working on a book on this. So when, when can we read your words as well as listen to your words about this? Uh, how, how's that coming along? 
Oh boy. I, yeah, I, it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun to work on it this summer. Uh, I, I, I wish I could give all my time to this. I, Realistically, I think it'll probably be a couple of years before we okay. see that in its, in its final product. I'm hope, hoping for sabbatical uh, a year from now, and then I'll hopefully be able to push it over the finish line at that point. All right. Well, thank you so much for the, the conversation. Um, it's, it's been very rich. There's, there's, there's lots in here. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to the Faith in Teaching podcast. We've been talking to Patrick Manning, and uh, I really think now you should probably go away and contemplate silently for a few minutes and uh, uh, think about how to how to bring this in in your own classroom. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to the Faith in Teaching podcast from the Kaiser Institute for Christian Teaching and Learning at Calvin University. Learn more at www.pedagogy.net.